Thanks for listening to our podcast today. This is episode number 11 of the Rise Up Mentoring Podcast. When we made that decision, when we were telling some of our friends who didn't share that same mindset, they thought we were crazy. They said, man, you about to sell this big old nice pretty house next to this nice baby in this nice school and you're going to get a smaller one? Something got to be wrong with you. And they were saying stuff like that. Like they just could not see the vision. But me and my wife were like, well, I mean, we're not going to stay forever in that house. We're going to get that house. We're going to get some money and we're going to build a bigger house. Rise Up Mentoring was created to help students get the advice and encouragement they need to successfully graduate and prepare for their careers and life overall. Listen to the conversations of students and successful mentors to become the best version of you. Get the helpful advice that everyone else seems to already have and that you wish someone would have shared with you. I'm sure the title seems a little odd, but you'll understand after you listen to this episode. I can assure you that we will not be talking about the people in prison. In this episode, I had the opportunity to speak with Eric Veltz. Eric Veltz is a multimillionaire in the making that is taking full advantage of his income and investing it in real estate. He has taken some time out of his busy schedule to speak to you today. Eric will explain how his way of thinking has been influenced by his network of mentors and what he did with their advice. I'm Norman Brown, your host of the Rise Up Mentoring Podcast. Eric, I want to thank you for joining us today. There are uh, several students that I've been talking to recently that have been listening to the podcast, and I'm surprised at the number of individuals that are out there with a chance and opportunity to check us out. Mm -hmm. So what I wanted to do today, and there's a concept that I've I've had written down for about a year now that I wanted to talk to somebody. I thought you would be the perfect individual to talk through with this item, right? So speaking with a young lady about a year ago and was talking to her, and I like to always plan with people. I like to tell them, hey, I'm broke. I'm I'm making minimum wage. (laughs) Don't look for anything from me. You guys are expecting way too much of me. So I I remember telling her something along those lines because I think she was uh, planning, this was after church, she wanted to come by the house and hang out with my daughters. And she was like, hey, I want to come out and hang out with Kendall and Taylor. I was like, okay, cool. You can, but, you know, we don't we don't have anything for you to really play with. I'm broke, can't afford to buy my kids any games or things to play with. You know, I'm completely <laughs> playing it up, telling her how we don't have anything at the house. And she was like, no, nah, Mr. Norman, you look like big house people. <laughs> and that blew my mind. But for an eight-year-old to look at me, look me up and down, it's like, nah, I know you lying. You guys look like big house people between you and Miss Brown. And I'm just like, wow, there's got to be something to that. If an eight-year-old could look somebody up and down and seeing other individuals like, no, you look like big house people. There's got to be something to it. So I want to try and piece that uh, uh, to break that down and then maybe put it back together so individuals might be able to understand, number one, What's the mindset that could possibly be going into what makes somebody as big house people? Right. right? There's got to be something different about right. somebody that can say, you know what, I'm going to buy a 2,000 square foot house or 3,000 square foot house, whatever that big house people is for certain individuals. Right. And then what's the mindset? How much understanding of money and investing does somebody need to have? And then second, we might talk about just money in general. Okay. I, I think of it as access to money, but we'll we'll go through that. Excellent. So if you're good with that, we'll go ahead and get started. I like it, sir. Let's go into it. All right. So, Eric, I want those students to understand that the way you think is the most important factor in success. Absolutely. Right? And also, 
that the way they think does not have to be the same exact way as their family and friends. Absolutely. Right? I think from what I know about you and what I know about your family and friends, there's definitely a difference between the way you think about money and the way you think about <laughs> investing and homes and things along those lines that may be different from your family. Yes. All right. What makes the way you think different from your family? And and if you choose to use an example, <laughs> please leave out the names of the guilty. <laughs> <laughs> we can do that. We can do that. So one of the things that I know and recognize by the way that I think is that I don't see the way that I think as being limited. There is no stopping the development of the way that I think. That's one key thing, because I think sometimes as people get older, they think there's a stopping point to learning. And so they grow and grow and grow and get to the point to where they're finished their education, they get a job, but then they think, all right, I'm good. I don't have to learn anymore. I've never been that person, even in my youth. I've always been one who has been really, I enjoy ingesting information. I like to learn things. I like to be curious and find out things. So that's one element of the way that I think that has helped me growing up and getting to the point that I am now. I guess I am considered a big house person because I have a 4,100 square foot house. Maybe that's big house. (laughs) (laughs) That one key thing about me personally is something that I've been able to isolate and say, yeah, I think I may do that a little different than what a lot of the rest of my family do. Because I remember even when I guess I was probably in college, I don't remember when Wikipedia came out. But whenever Wikipedia came out, I remember that being one of the most exciting things for me to do on the Internet, because in a particular subject that you find in Wikipedia, there's always links to other topics that may branch off of that one subject. And I just got so energized by that. I would click on a thing. I would see something. I hit another link. I hit another link. Before I know it, I've spent two, three hours just combing through Wikipedia. That wasn't my brother. My brother was playing PlayStation. (laughs) But that was me. I just enjoy gathering information. And so that, that would be my answer to the question on what I think is different with how I think versus how some of my family. Bro, that is awesome. So you sharing that example makes me think of the things that our father did with my brother and I. Mm. He bought a, so before online was big, right? He bought one of those encyclopedia sets on whatever the equivalent of Craigslist was back in the 90s. And he bought one of those encyclopedia sets. And it wasn't something that we said, hey, I can't wait to pick up that book, (laughs) that 600 page book, right? It wasn't that. Right. But every week he made us write a report, one page, handwritten summary of what we learned that week. But the key thing that he did was he didn't tell us what we had to learn. He didn't tell us what it was. We just had to pick a topic. Wow. And when he said that, I would go through it and I'm like, nope, don't want to write anything about that. Nope, don't want to write anything about that. But by the time I figured out what I didn't want to write, I'd read six, seven, eight articles just like you did with Wikipedia. And it wasn't because I was more interested. Ooh, let me check out that. Ooh, let me check out that. It was, oh, okay, let me let me go ahead and read this. No, I, I, I don't even understand what, what they were talking about on that one. Let me go to the next one. Yeah. No, don't. I'm, no, thank Oolong tea. What, what in the world is Oolong what tea? Is Oolong tea, huh? A Chinese tea that's good for herbal remedies and medications. Look okay, great. Great. <laughs> I remember all this crap because I was reading all that stuff. So yeah. the fact, whether you did it because you were intrigued or because you were trying to avoid something. The fact is that you were reading and learning and reading and learning. That's a great, and that's one of the things that I think I've seen 
the more successful people do. Wow. They definitely keep on learning. So thank you for that example. Absolutely. That was awesome. So we talked about what you did yeah. and how you did it and how you think differently. Can you give us an example of someone that that does not subscribe to that same mentality as an example? <laughs> yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna do like you said earlier, we're gonna let them remain nameless. I got friends. So, I mean, I grew up in an area, Port Arthur, Texas, Southeast Texas, kind of close to the Louisiana border. Not the most affluent of neighborhoods. In fact, it is probably the opposite of that. It's somewhat of a depressed area Mm -hmm. and just kind of economic growth and just potential for people to step out and really be able to grow themselves. So it's a bit of a it's a bit of a challenged area. And so I've got a lot of friends that are from that area because those are the people that I grew up. So we just naturally had relationships with one another. And um, and I was always I was always referred to. Well, I say always, probably more in my high school years and up as a gangster nerd, because being in Port Austin, <laughs> a gangster nerd, you could. Is that, a, is that in Webster? No, in it may be in the Urban Dictionary, but it's not going to be. in Webster. <laughs> but what the reason that that term was able to fit me is because, like I said, I've always had that curiosity and that that tenacious desire to want to learn more things. But at the same time, I still carried all of the characteristics and mannerisms of somebody that grew up in that area. And so a lot of my friends would, they would make fun of me about the gangster nerd thing. And then obviously ask for my help with testing, all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, they would still want to hang out with me and we'd still would, you know, kind of get together and do different things, play basketball. A lot of times with our pastime, but a lot of my friends didn't spend that same time educating themselves. And so what ended up happening is when we jumped out of high school, which really didn't equip us for college life, and we all, or I guess a majority of us tried to make our way into the college life, a lot of them couldn't hack it. A lot of them, they were so far behind their education and they had no good, clear way of being able to bridge that gap that they just dropped out. They just saw the mountain before them of college is just being too much to traverse and they just went on ahead quit. Whereas me, I was already used to learning things on my own because I was doing it naturally. Right. So I just took the same skill set that I developed that I wasn't even trying to develop and I used that to bridge the gap in a lot of the deficiencies that I had in my education. So I just did it on my own. I didn't know calculus, had no clue what was going on in calculus. Thank God Wikipedia was there. So I was able able to Google things. I was able to look up stuff online. I was able to use what I looked up online to find references to books that I actually had access to in my schools. And I kind of taught myself a lot of things because I was already in that mode anyway. But that, I guess, is a good example that I thought of. There's a lot of friends that are still not where they would like to be because they've never learned how to just break through your lack of understanding and things and then grow it because you can, right? It's our brains are a muscle. We can develop them just like we can develop anything else, but you have to be willing to want to do that. You got to be willing to take the time. I just, I can't take credit for it. Right? I'm just have been blessed to where I enjoy developing my muscle. Yeah. I, I was definitely programmed. Yeah. I was definitely programmed to, to do that very much. So between the individuals that raised me, the individuals in my family and individuals that I work with, it became the expectation that if you do not know something, you heard somebody say a phrase mm. or use a word that you don't understand, your job was to go look it up. Wow. And I'll give you a funny example of it. <laughs> One of the teachers that I had in middle school, 
I had a problem with authority figures. I'll go ahead and say it out now. I'm much better at it now. But I had a problem with authority figures. I remembered asking Mr. Gunn, what's his name? I remembered asking Mr. Gunn what a particular word was that he used. Mm. And he loved using SAT words in everyday life that a sixth and seventh grader would never know. Right. So I remember raising my hand and asking him what the word actually meant. And he was rude about it with me. And I was a little bit, like I said, I, I didn't like the fact that he would treat me as though I was subpar beneath or type individual. So he was rude with me and said, well, Mr. Brown, if you're so interested in what that word means, I suggest you go look it up. Now, he didn't say like, hey, you should go check it out at the end of class. He was just very abrasive about yeah. it. So I, being the arrogant individual that I was at the time, I jumped up in the middle of class, looked him dead in the eye, turned my back and walked to the back of the class where he had dictionaries. I look up the word in those big dictionaries from back in the day. <laughs> I look up the word. And as soon as I got to the answer, I said, oh, that's what that means. And I slammed the dictionary shut. And then put it back on the shelf. Man. <laughs> I wasn't as crazy as these students all today where they gonna go ahead and throw go to blows with yeah, the teacher. Do it too much. <laughs> wow. But I would do that every time he used an SAT word and wouldn't tell us what it meant. I'd jump up in the middle of the class, I'd walk to the back, and after about a week of that, he was failing. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't appreciate that, huh? <laughs> but I say that because my expectation now, and, and I've got my barber makes fun of me with it now. He just mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. He's like, man, every time you say something that Norman doesn't know or you bring up a question, the first thing he does is he picks out that phone and he goes on Google and he finds out what's the name of that show that we were talking about earlier. Wow. Or who was the 42nd president? Yeah. Who was the 12th president? <laughs> you know, little things that come out and they start talking in the barbershop is notorious for this, where people just start throwing out. Answers. So yeah, I think yeah. it was Alan Edgar Hoover. That, that, that person doesn't even exist. <laughs> Don't right? have a but they're making up things, <laughs> and it drives me nuts. So I go to Google, I go to YouTube, I go to Wikipedia, just like you, and I'm going to encourage each and every one of the students listening to this podcast today that go and learn everything that you can from Google and YouTube. There are even courses that you inform yourself on Udemy, right? Oh, yeah. U D E M Y. You dummy, you can go on there and buy courses for five, ten, fifteen dollars and watch videos how to learn Anything. to sell something online. How to if you wanted to list your house or apartment or room on Airbnb, they got courses to tell you how to do that, how to set up all the marketing for it and all that. We live in an unprecedented age of information right now. And for me, it's it's kind of a double-edged sword for me because I am so insatiable about information. I can find myself distracted the entire day right. just looking at different topics. Like you said, right? You hear something that you've never heard of before you pop on your phone. And before you know it, you know, you've got a whole world of information that you just made available to you just from your phone. Right. And so it's fantastic for learning. But yeah, that's balanced everything. And that's what I'm learning. <laughs> I met with some students today and I told them, I said, you have $600 computers sitting in your in back pocket. Your pocket. And they're like, $600 computers? What are you talking about, Mr. Norman? This is like, are you serious? Like in your back, what you have? What do you have in your big back pocket? Oh, our phones! They're whispering to each other's like, "Who's <laughs> talking about our phones?" <laughs> oh, wow. So it's just outstanding to me that they are able to walk around with their computers. Back in the you know, but back in the day, we had to go home, oh, yeah. write something down, go home, and pull it up on our computer. So they can literally learn anything wherever they are, whether they're on a bus. They happen to be on the porch at mom's or grandmother's house. Yeah. They have all these opportunities. It's crazy. So it's that's crazy. We live in. 
So we talked about the mindset. Yes. That's cool. Yes. But do you have any specific recommendations on how did you learn about money? What steps did you take? Who did you speak with? What books did you read? Do you have any advice for the students listening today on what they should do to learn about money and investing? So again, like to the point that we just made uh, right now, the students listening and that are of age now that have access to the technology, which is pretty much everybody because kids get phones at really young ages these days. But right now, there are so many resources for free online to learn about money that it's just unprecedented. So I can give you my story on how I learned about money, but kids have a much easier way to be able to learn about it than I did. So for me, my first real exposure to really learning about money was for high school, the second half of our high school time frame, right? We got ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th, the 11th and 12th grade years. My school actually gave all of those students access to a technical school, like a little technical institute where you could learn a specific skill. There was like metal shop, there was wood shop, there was drafting and AutoCAD, there was Cisco networking, there was like home ec where they got to do cooking and sewing and all that kind of stuff. And so I chose the Cisco networking because I was kind of fascinated with computers because I was already on them a little bit playing around, poking around on the internet. And so I did that course for my two years. I did well enough in the first year to be able to actually get a job while still in high school. I was able to go to the different schools that were in the independent school district that I was a part of and actually help troubleshoot their networks, help troubleshoot their computer labs and all that kind of stuff. Real cool job, especially cool being a high school kid, going back to high school, working on the computers. Right. So everybody, I mean, I was a real person in demand at the time because people were trying to get me to do stuff that I didn't have no business doing with their computers, (laughs) but I didn't do it. But anyway, back to that exposure to money. That was my first job. And At that job, my mom made it a point to let me know that if I didn't want to be doing work like that for my entire life, that I needed to handle the money that I made at that job in a way that was going to position me for something better. Okay. And so as a result, one of the things she had me do, I had to pay my own insurance. Even at that early age, I had a car. I needed a car to be able to get around. I had to pay my own insurance. She made me set a certain amount to the side to be able to put into a bank account. And then whatever else I had left, because I was still relatively young, she let me spend. I didn't have to really budget all of it, but two thirds of it I did. I had to use that toward something that I was actively using, which is insurance for my car. And the second half of it, or second third of it, I had to put into a bank account. And so what she was trying to do with that lesson was to show me that just because you get money doesn't mean you have to spend that money. Just because you have it in your pocket or have it in a bank account doesn't mean that you have to immediately go and go find some use for that money that I could save it up and eventually get something bigger later. Because what she didn't tell me about allowing me to put it into the bank account is that once I had a certain amount, she actually let me go spend it how I wanted. Mm -hmm. And so what I realized in that simple lesson was, wow, if I just wait a little bit and build up money. Things that I really want that I would normally have to ask my mom for, I could go get on my own with my own money. Mm -hmm. And so that was my first base level teaching on money. It kind of escalated from there a couple of years later when I actually entered into college with the first credit card that I had. Because a lot of college kids get embraced with a bunch of different folks trying to get them signed up for a new credit card Mm -hmm. in college. Because they know that those kids are going to get those credit cards and get buried in debt because the kids, a lot of them don't have that foundational knowledge on how to use a credit card. And so that happened to me. 
And my mom, I'm, I'm so grateful for her because as soon as I came home, it was like, hey, mom, look at the application for a credit card. She said, uh, okay, do you know how to use a credit card? I say, no, but it's money. I'm about to get paid. <laughs> <laughs> and I ain't got to ask you for nothing no more. They said, I can get $300 credit limit. <laughs> and she was laughing at me, but... You know, she she saw that again as another opportunity to make sure that I knew what was what that credit card was and how to use it. So she refused because actually at that time, I think I needed her to sign off. on it. I don't think I could just sign off on it on my own. So she refused to sign off on it unless I made an agreement with her with how I was going to handle purchases with that card. And that agreement was you don't buy anything with this card that you can't immediately pay for out of your bank account. And that was the agreement. And at any point that I violated that and got into debt as a result, she was going to take the credit card. Yeah, that's great advice. And so that's what I did. That's phenomenal. Right. I took the credit card. And I, again, because I already was used to being able to use a bank account. So she, she did a good job in stacking these lessons up to where, to where they could build on top of each other. I was using the credit card, but then I was watching my bank balance at the same time because she said, you never made it pay that minimum payment. You never pay that minimum payment. You pay that credit card off before that interest comes due. And so in order for that to be feasible, I had to have money in the bank account. So I did it that way. And I'll tell you this today that, man, that was, oh, that was probably 16, 17 years ago. And that credit card has been one of the foundational elements of my credit history today. Because I've never used it. I've never used it in a way to where I was going to accumulate a lot of interest. Yeah. That that was a tremendous lesson for me. And that's one I'm absolutely teaching my kids as we go forward. Both of those lessons in that same way. So you never built up years and years and years of credit card debt. No. Right. So that, that's never been a big problem for you. What about student loans? I, I never had to deal with student loans either. I worked because I was already used to working. I had to end up working through my college. Thankfully, said I grew up in Port Arthur, Texas. The closest university to that city is Lamar University. Lamar University was really good school for engineering. It's one of the reasons I went there. But another big reason that I went there is because I was able to go to that school and still be able to live at home. So I didn't have to rack up a lot of housing expenses related to college life. And the tuition is low enough at that school to where I was able to use. I had a little scholarship. I was able to use that scholarship. I was able to use Pell Grant that I had access to because of the income and the household I was living in and all the, the balance that was left over after those two. I just kind of paid for it during work. So I never had to deal with student loans either. That's what I don't think a lot of folks understand is that they think, oh, my parents don't have any money, so I can't go to college. Like, no, there are grants out there yes. that if you have your grades at a decent level, you don't even have to be fantastic. You don't have to be 4.0 student. Right. You can get those grants where I think today are up to $5,500 of grant money that you can receive, yeah, which will pay the tuition for many of the schools for that semester right. here in Texas, as well as in other states in the U.S. So if you're able to do, especially if you do a community college, you can do community college without much debt at all. Absolutely. Do a little bit of work, still help out at home if you need to be helping out at home and yep. stack some money so that when you do go away to college, you don't have to take out a ton of debt. Absolutely. And I'm amazed that today, I think the average student loan debt is somewhere around the thirty-two dollars to $35,000 of student loan debt that people leave and graduate college with. Man. That's a lot of money. That's a lot right? of money. Because it took me years before I ever had $30,000 oh, in the bank. Oh, my god! So I know, most students, <laughs> yeah. I know most students don't have that kind of money. So I really encourage them to minimize the amount of 
student loan debt that they rack up. Absolutely. I've got folks that have gone to colleges that were charging thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars a year and they didn't have any scholarships. Everything was loans. Wow. So when they came out of school, they had anywhere from $120,000 of student loan debt to $200,000 of student loan debt. And they don't realize it's not free money. Right. Uncle Sam will get his money back. Yes, he will. And if you don't give him his money back, he will reach into your bank account, <laughs> take that money out, and send you a letter saying thank you for paying your student loan debt. Yes, he will. Thank you for your $3,000 payment on your student loan debt. Meanwhile, you were about to buy a 60-inch TV. Oh, no, you're right? not. <laughs> not anymore. Because Uncle Sam could take that money out of your account. He sure right? can. There's a lot of things that folks don't realize. They think it's free money. Folks are telling, I've got friends that have told me, well, the reason I got into a bunch of student loan debt is my, my sister, my big sister told me that, hey, man, if you can get that much money, just go ahead and take it all out. Right. right? All you got to do is pay $10 a month right. or $20 a month. And meanwhile, he's 40-something years old today, still paying back, I think, a $10,000 student loan from 20 years ago because he was only paying minimum payments. And I'm so so grateful. That lesson to never pay those minimum payments, I adhere to that like law today for my financial uh, strategy, right? We don't pay minimum payments. You spend credit card money in a way that actually helps you make money. That's how you use credit cards today. But yeah, that's, yeah. All right. So what I would advise anybody, because what we basically told folks is I don't want them to walk away from this conversation that, well, basically, if you grew up with a family that didn't know how to use money, that you're screwed. Right. Right. I don't want them to think that there are a couple of resources that I definitely want to highlight. I had something of that background where my my dad taught me a little bit about money Mm -hmm. before I left from school. But one of the things that I made it a point to do was. I went online and I learned everything I could. Yes, sir. CNN has a portion of their website that's dedicated to learning about money. Right. Right. So I went on to CNN Money and they literally have lesson one through, I think, lesson 25 on this is what credit is. This is what savings is. Yeah. These are the steps that you need to go through to purchase a home. Right. So I went through each one of those as something was coming up. Oh, I need to buy a car. Yeah. Let me go through this and I'd read the one or two page article that they put together so I know what I need to understand. Right. right. My dad, he set me up really well in that he taught me do not spend any more than I already have in the bank. Yes. That he did fantastically well. I don't think I understood credit scores as well yeah. as I needed to. Oh, no, I didn't um, either. I agree with that. I was fortunate because my dad is also named Norman Brown <laughs> that his credit history showed up on my credit oh, history. Fantastic. So when I came out of college, <laughs> I had a 720 credit history, wow. a credit score of 720. So when I went to go buy my first car, they're like, OK, so is your dad co-signing? I said, well, you know, does he have to know? Like, well, no, let's, no, sir. Looking at your credit history here, <laughs> you can buy this car on your own. So it allowed me to do a lot of things as a result. So what I'm going to encourage students to do is to learn more about the importance of a credit score. Yes. Check it out. Different books. And one of the students I spoke to today mentioned a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Oh, yeah. Right? So he was talking about Rich Dad, Poor Dad oh, today. Yes. And I was amazed at the number of books that these high school students had read. Wow. Because I can tell you right now, I had never read a book when I was in high school that nope. wasn't assigned to me. No, nope, right? not a book. If my dad didn't make me read the encyclopedia <laughs> and my teacher didn't make me read, I never went ahead and read any of that. It wasn't until that I got to college that I found that there were these books that only cost like $12 and they would teach me a bunch about money. 
So I bought those. And during the summers when I had off from school, I didn't have any homework. I just went ahead and I'd read five, six, seven, ten pages each night. Yeah. Right. By the end of the internship, I'd have read a whole book. Wow. Yeah. Which for me, it was a feat. <laughs> now I read or I listen to uh, several books throughout the year. I think that's a, a fantastic point about what you just said. You said it real quick and passing. You listen to there's fantastic resources. Not everybody can just sit down and read a book. That's not easy for everybody to do, especially if you don't have that history of reading books. I didn't really have a history of reading books. I had a history of reading stuff online, which was slightly a little different. But what is available today in YouTube videos, like you said, the CNN money stuff, you don't even have to read and you can still get the knowledge. You can subscribe to YouTube channels where they're talking about money, where they're talking about credit, where they're talking about all this stuff. And they make it enjoyable to watch. They put little graphics in and everything flies around and all that good stuff. So there are fantastic resources. You just Google or YouTube credit usage or how to learn about credit or something like that in YouTube or in Google. Man, there's fantastic resources that are not in written form that people can take advantage of today. Something that we just did not have access to back in the day. Absolutely. Eric, we talked about credit a little bit. We talked about credit scores. And I think in the past, as as we've had our conversations, you've mentioned that you you have rental properties Yes. Uh, in addition to the home that you live in now. Yes, sir. How did you get the money to be able to buy all those homes? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of students, a lot of youth, they think individuals that live in these big homes had the, the $200,000, $300,000, whatever it is, Ooh. to buy that home cash. Man. Did you have that money no, in the bank? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so buying the first rental property. So I guess I give a little background on kind of my whole house ownership path. My wife and I got married in 2010. Uh, By that time, I'd been working as an engineer for about two and a half years. The house that we bought, we bought in April of that year. We got married in June of that year. The house that we bought was in a really nice neighborhood. It was close to a really good school network. It actually was all three schools together. It was an elementary, it was a middle and a high within like you know, a block or two from the neighborhood. So that was the attraction. We wanted a nice house and a nice neighborhood next to some nice schools. So we ended up buying this house and we liked it. At first, we were more excited about the neighborhood and the school than the house, but the house was nice. So we went on ahead and went with the house anyway. After about two to three years, we realized, man, we're paying a lot of money in taxes for this house. And we don't really like the house that much. Neighborhood's cool. School's cool. But I don't, I'm not that excited about the house. And my wife shared that same sentiment. So we devised the plan at that point to sell that house because at this time it's about 2013 housing market in the Houston area is just climbing year over year. My wife has always been somewhat interested in real estate. So she was kind of watching these things. And so as we were watching that trend of house prices go up, we were like, hey, you know, we could probably sell this house, make a little money, get us a smaller house, live in that for a little bit, buy some land and build the house that we wanted to build. And that that thinking, I'm making a long story short here because that all that thinking was not native to either me or my wife. We didn't grow up like that. We just happened to meet different people that we built relationships with that gave us these kind of mindsets. And, you know, so we were in a completely different realm of thinking at that point than we were even three years before when we got married. And so we made that decision. Actually, it was funny when we made that decision, when we were telling some of our friends who didn't share that same mindset, they thought we were crazy. 
They said, man, you about to sell this big old nice pretty house next to this nice neighborhood in this nice school, and you gonna get a smaller one? So got to be wrong with you. And they were saying stuff like that, like they just could not see the vision. But me and my wife were like, well, I mean, we're not going to stay forever in that house. We're going to get that house. We're going to get some money and we're going to build a bigger house. And so anyway, that first house, we actually bought using a home loan. Right. We got it mortgage. Right. That was the uh, that's the to your question. How did you finance? How did you get the access to the money to get that house? Well, we went on ahead and we bought that house. Like anybody, like most normal people buy houses with a traditional FHA loan because we were going to live in it as our primary residence. And so I know I'm throwing out a lot of different terms there that may not be familiar to all the listeners, but that was the strategy for getting that house. That strategy works in those terms, primary residence, because we did not have to put the full 20% down payment for the mortgage for that house. So we were able to put a reduced down payment down for the house and then get into that house. So we didn't need as much capital out of the bank to be able to do that. Now, that's how we got that first house. We eventually moved into it. That same year, we saw a great opportunity for another house that we could use in an investment property. We couldn't call that one our primary residence. So we would have to put the full 20% down to be able to get another mortgage. And so on that one, what we actually did, because we saw this as a great opportunity, we took money out of our 401k. Because the way that we were looking at it was, hey, you know what? We're about to sell this other house because at this point we hadn't sold the other house. Mm -hmm. We're about to sell this other house in this nice neighborhood and we're probably going to make a little bit of money on the equity. So worst case scenario, we'll just have to pay back our 401k loan that we're taking out to be able to get this house and be able to pay the full 20 percent as the rental. So Um, it's temporary. Yes. Taking out the loan, that strategy was a temporary strategy based upon us pulling some money or receiving some money for equity from the sale of the other house. Mm -hmm. And so that was the strategy. It didn't quite work out that way. We didn't get as much money from the sale of the house as we'd have liked, but we were still able to take the money out of the 401k loan, buy the house as an investment property, put a little money to fix it up and then pay ourselves back some of that loan money from the sale of the, uh, the other house. And so that was that strategy. And then ultimately, over time, we ended up paying that loan back, of course. We didn't wait until we had all of the money that we thought we were going to need to have to be able to launch out and do this investments. Because sometimes you're going to miss out great opportunities when you do that. The name of the game is being resourceful, asking questions, being open to people that are where you want to be. And they'll give you ideas because I actually found out about the 401k loan from a coworker that already had 10 investment properties. Mm -hmm. He was my motivation to even want to do the investment property. And so when I told him what I wanted to do and I found a great opportunity, he immediately began to give me different tactics that I can use in order to be able to try to make that happen. And so that's, that's where it came from. And it was a fantastic move. Right now, we ultimately did buy the land and build the house. That's the 4,100 square foot house that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. And now we've got two rental properties feeding us every month. How big was the first house? Both of these houses are relatively small. Well, actually, oh, the first house, not the first investment property. The first house was 2,638 square feet. Okay. So you went from 2,638 square feet to a smaller home. To a a 1,500 square foot To a 1,500. Yes. Right. So taking that step back enabled you to add 26 
plus 15 and come up with a 40 percent <laughs> <laughs> I never made that connection. That's absolutely That's pretty right. awesome. Huh? That's pretty awesome. <laughs> so so individuals, uh, listen, to anybody listening today, I want them to understand that taking a step back, yes, if it's on purpose, is not necessarily taking a step back. Yes. So I wanted them to catch that. You said a bunch of different things. So FHA loans versus traditional loans, you don't really need to know what all of them stand for. But what I will tell you is FHA loans are loans where you generally get to put three yes. or five percent down that is correct. on a mortgage. That means if you want a hundred thousand dollar home, you only have to come up with three thousand to five thousand dollars worth of money yes. to be per- able to purchase that home Absolutely versus correct. the traditional where you would need twenty percent, yes, where sir. you would need twenty thousand dollars. So I just need to walk this through as an example for the students listening Absolutely. to today. So that's a big difference <laughs> of fifteen to seventeen thousand dollars. Yes, it is. And anybody that has that opportunity, if you have good credit and it is your first time buying a home, you're able to take advantage of that. Yes. So I wanted to make sure they understand that. Number one. Number two, you mentioned talking to other individuals and yes. they gave you advice. Yes. Being in the right circles, talking to oh, individuals about goodness. what you would like to do is absolutely Huge. It's huge. It's right. so huge. Absolutely necessary for you to be able to move forward in learning things. Yes. My wife mentioned to individuals that she wanted to buy a house. So they took her step by step by step. Here's what you need to do to be able to buy a house. Wow. Right? Then, matter of fact, if you want, I'll come with you to the bank <laughs> and walk you through the stuff. Wow, that's right? awesome. <laughs> so if you have individuals that you network with, individuals that you work with, individuals that you hang out with, whatever the situation yes. is, if they are willing to give you advice, yes. listen to the advice oh. and then make something happen. If they see that you took one step, two steps or three steps toward what they told you to go do. Yes. They will give you even more advice. And it's all free. It's all free. I had a lady sit down and tell me everything that I needed to do. She was actually my accountant at the time. Mm-hmm. And I know y'all hearing us are like, oh, my God, he has an accountant. It, it isn't <laughs> that big of a deal. Right. You pay somebody a couple hundred dollars and they help you save money. Right. So I sat down with this lady and she's like, well, Norman, if you got all this stuff going on, if you do this, you do this, you do this. And she wrote down five or six steps of what I needed to do yeah. for her to help me save money. Wow. I did all six steps. I bet you did. Right? <laughs> so when I came back the next year, she was like, oh, you actually did it? What do you mean? Right. Did I do it? Right. You're about to save me money. She saved me like an extra $1,000. Oh, my gosh. Wow. She was well worth the $100 or $200 that I was paying them. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So if those individuals are giving you advice and they are so kind to write it down, uh-huh. let alone tell you. Write it down and say step by step by step. Here are the three, four, five, six things that you need to do yes. to save a couple hundred dollars, save a thousand dollars. Man, those are some things that you need to make happen. Absolutely. And if you do that and you come back to them and you tell them, "Hey, I did this," they will give you even better advice the next time. It's an amazing thing that happens when people feel like the information that they shared with you was valuable to you. They unlock that unlocks the floodgates for people. Because they feel like you appreciate it. So they want to. And people like to share. That's right. the thing that we got to understand. People like to share information as much as we should like to receive. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's, a, it's a beautiful inter- exchange that happens. There's no magic to becoming wealthy. As Eric Veltz just shared with us, you have to make smart decisions about money again and again and again. People grow rich over 10 years, 15 years, or even longer than that. 
If someone tells you that they can help you get rich in 10 months, walk away because they're trying to rob you of the little money that you have. Most of us aren't fortunate enough to learn much about money from our families because they don't know a lot about growing rich. That doesn't mean you should sit back and cry about it, though. So I encourage you to go out and do something about it. At the very least, Google the topic you're interested in and check out the first website to learn more about whatever topic it is that you're interested in. Eric referred to a resource called Udemy. I wanted to highlight the website for you in case it caught your interest. Udemy.com is an online learning platform where you can get step-by-step instructions about topics like photography, real estate, or even game design. Some courses are free, while others often cost $10 or $15. Now, before you go, I wanted to let you know that in an effort to improve the quality of the podcast and produce more resources for our listeners, I am changing the frequency of episode releases to monthly. I'll be sharing with you more tools and resources that will help you follow in the footsteps of the mentors you're listening to in each episode. All new resources will be added to the website, but if you would like to sign up in advance to be the first to learn about the new resources, please send an email to riseupmentors at gmail.com with only the word resources in the subject line. I'm Norman Brown, and you've been listening to the Rise Up Mentoring Podcast, where we believe if you listen today, you will succeed tomorrow.